0: Help us understand what it means that you are one. Father, we're starting to look at this amazing passage in in Ephesians this week and next week when Paul says that there's uh, one body, one spirit, one hope that belongs to our call. That must be that what Paul said earlier in Ephesians, that you're uniting all things in, in Christ Jesus One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all, um, one. Lord God, would you help us understand what that oneness is? I mean, the world longs for it. We talk about it. Christians, I think, are even afraid to talk about it because they think they sound Buddhist or something, or New Age. God, help us understand what it means to be one as you are one, because you are one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord God, help us to believe the gospel is, I, I think, what, what I'm saying. And help us to live the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, hopefully uh, most of you know that we spent kind of the fall preaching through the first half of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one through three. And then we had Christmas, remember that, where we celebrated the birth and the incarnation of Jesus. And then Andrew preached a great message last week about the birth and the incarnation of the church, Uh, Acts chapter 2, the spirit incarnate in uh, the the body of the church and our life together. And then uh, today we begin to preach Ephesians chapter 4. All of that is rather fortuitous or uh, well-planned, even though we didn't plan it, It works well because um, Ephesians chapter three really forms the first half of the book, one through three, and then there's a transition into the second half of the book, which is a transition that's really present in most of Paul's letters. It's the transition from the indicative to the imperative, from theology to ethics, from doxology to ecclesiology, from worship, to incarnation, and and the order is important. It's it's like this, because the gospel is true, that's Ephesians chapters one through three, this is how you ought to live, Ephesians chapters four through six. Not this is how uh, we ought to live in order that the gospel could be true, uh, but this is true. The gospel is true, and now let's live worthy of that truth. You see, in Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, Paul's going to talk about our relationships, our speech, our possessions, our sexuality, our work, our families, our social structure, our spiritual warfare, our Christian walk. So, so this is the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of of chapter four, Ephesians 319, may you know, this is remember we, we preached on the, may you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. And now Ephesians chapter four, verse one, I therefore... Or, or, therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, I, a prisoner of the Lord, therefore, therefore, I urge you, therefore, I beseech you, therefore, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, what is the calling to which we have been called? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, remember Paul said that we have been destined and appointed to live to the praise of God's glory in chapter two, and to walk in the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in chapter three, that through us the manifold wisdom of God would be proclaimed to the principalities and powers, proclaimed to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. In other words, angels should look at you and tremble with joy. (laughs) Demons should look at you and shudder in fear. Our calling is to proclaim the gospel. And not just with our lips, but with our lives. The manner in which, the way in which we walk. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, some of you are terrified of this. And some of you have been waiting for this, eagerly waiting for this. How do we walk worthy of the gospel? Just tell me, what must I do, and then how do I know if I'm doing it? Well, Paul's going to tell us. You're going to tell us beginning in the next sentence. And so we can test ourselves. We can measure our spiritual growth. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now. And this is what you could win. Okay? Now, uh, this is the first annual Sanctuary Worthy Walker Trophy. And, and you'll see that I have this professionally made, number one worthy walker. It says it right there. Now, now, there's a walker up here. He's holding a football. He has a football helmet on. But that, I mean, that really doesn't matter, okay? But but Andrew, you, Jim, you could win this, okay? You could win this, this Sanctuary Worthy Walker Trophy for 2012, okay? We're a little late on it, but I'll set it right here for Motivation, The Sanctuary Worthy Walker Trophy. And now the test, the examination. Five marks of the worthy walker. Ephesians 4, um, uh, t- 2 through 3, okay. Uh, Paul said, walk, walk, walk worthy. And then down in verse 2, um, walk worthy of your calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And, and now the task, all right? Are you walking, a walk worthy of your calling, all right? So the first characteristic of the worthy walker is all humility. And uh, if you study this, humility is really foundational to all five, or all the other four characteristics. Humility, tapena frasune is the Greek, it literally means lowliness of mind. It comes from two other words, and, and it's actually a noun that was coined by the early church, built from the Greek adjective for lowly or noble or, or servile. It was used of slaves, that, that adjective. It was used of the last and, and the very least. In Greek culture, you see, humility was definitely not a virtue. It was not a virtue. Humility is the realization that you don't deserve anything. R.C. Trench writes that it comes from the constant sense of your own creatureliness. In other words, it's the realization that you did not create you. So of course you don't deserve anything because what could you deserve it with? It's like Paul says in First Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Philippians 2, 3. He writes, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourself. So number one is humility. So examine yourself and see how humble, humble you are and rank yourself one to 10. I mean, you can write the number down, okay, but I do not want to print all these up. You can write the number down or you can just remember it in your head because this is actually a pretty, pretty simple and easy test. One is no humility, 10 is all humility. Now Paul said all humility. Not some humility, like, you know, like to a point, but all humility. That'd be like there's no room for for pride at, at, at all. Well, number two is gentleness, which also gets translated meekness. The, the Greek word is praeutes. It's, it's uh, this, this, uh, this word that, that was used for an animal that's been, been tamed, that, that doesn't assert it, 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 itself. Based on Aristotle's definitions, William Barclay writes that the meek man gets angry over wrongs done to another, but never angry over wrongs done to the self. The meek don't defend the self. And so the meek are impossible to offend. The humble are impossible to embarrass, and the meek are impossible to offend. Over Christmas, I watched this great documentary on some channel about uh, the making of uh, Monty Python's The Life of Brian, have you seen that movie? At the time the movie came out, it was extremely controversial and Christians were extremely offended because it was a parody of the life of, of Jesus Christ. Originally, they were gonna title it Jesus Christ: Quest for Glory. But they changed it to the life of Brian. And and you know Brian is like mistaken for Jesus in the movie. In the documentary John Cleese explains why why they changed it. He said Jesus isn't funny. That is that when they began working on the movie they found that they could not laugh at Jesus. Not that they should not laugh at Jesus but that they, they could not laugh at Jesus. John Cleese explains this theory of humor that he ascribes to regarding humanity's quest for glory, which you know is our ego, and how humor involves offending these inflexible egos, and then he said this, and I quote, Jesus is infinitely flexible. He has no ego. And then it goes on to say, we couldn't laugh at Jesus. You know, in the movie, even Brian is like the straight man in the movie. He says, we couldn't laugh at Jesus, but we found that it was easy to laugh at his followers. (laughs) And and that's really what, what the movie was about. And so, of course, we're offended. Well, anyway, are you easy to offend or are you meek? Are you easily offended or can you laugh at yourself? You know, it's hard to laugh at people that are already laughing at at themselves. I mean, we laugh with those people, but not at those people. We laugh at pompous people, people who can't laugh at themselves. It's interesting, in Psalm chapter two, scripture says that Jesus will laugh. He'll laugh at the principalities and powers, the kings and the rulers of this earth. Laugh them to scorn. Well, Well, anyway, rank yourself number one easily offended, and uh, 10, meek. Number three, macrothumia, patience. It literally means long-suffering. Chrysostom, the church father, he defines it this way, as the spirit that has the power to take revenge, but never does, okay, one to 10. Number four, bearing with one another in love. That means if someone in this room happens to score lower on the worthy walking test than you, you will bear their failure as if it was your own. Bear it in love, agape. And now, that's interesting, too, because that's another world that was really coined or developed by the early church. And that's because the other Greek words for love were too self-interested. In other words, they described love for some other reward. Romans 12, Paul writes this. Let agape, love, be genuine. Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, compete at letting other people win. That's bearing with another in love. So anyway, go ahead and, and rank yourself and, and win the, the trophy. I mean, don't you kind of wonder how other people are doing right now? what their score is compared, I mean, don't you kind of wonder how Jim's doing, Andrew? Like, if you're, yeah, anyway, okay. Number five, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager for unity, unity. That means another score is your score and your score is their score and you eagerly accept that because you are one. That's, That's unity. So rank yourself, add up your score. Okay, got your score in your mind? All right. This is a big moment. Okay, who who ranked better than 40? 30? 20? 10? Now, some of you probably probably did. I mean, in your head, you were were getting there. Yeah, but you're afraid afraid to raise your hand right now because you have become aware of an obvious problem with this whole procedure, right? There's an obvious problem here. And And it seems there's a rather obvious problem with the modern American evangelical church. Because really, if, if you were to go down to the 16th Street Mall after the service and just walk up to people on the mall and say, hey, could you just describe for me, could you describe you know, Bible-based, born-again evangelical Christians? Just go ahead and describe them. Well, the odds are that they probably wouldn't describe them, describe us with these five characteristics, right? Oh yeah, those born-again Bible-believing evangelical Christians, they are absolutely humble. <laughs> they are the people that are uh, entirely tolerant and, and absolutely difficult to offend. You just can't even offend those people. They're the meek ones, the patient ones, uh, the tolerant ones who bear the pain of other people's sins. And wow, they just really get along <laughs> you know, with each other. <laughs> no. Now, maybe you feel a little bit convicted by that. And so you're you're thinking to yourself, it's so true. We really need to humble ourselves. Uh, We really need to make ourselves worthy. Well, how do you humble yourself? I think I told you the, the story of the pastor who was in the sanctuary one day and he walked down front he was just overwhelmed by the glory of God and he dropped to his knees in front of the communion table and he just cried out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. Well, the choir director happened to be in the balcony He was watching the pastor and the choir director came down threw himself on his knees next to the pastor and he cried out too, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. Well, the janitor was cleaning in the back of the church and the janitor came down front, knelt down next to the choir director and the pastor and he cried out as well, oh God, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And at that, the choir director nudged the pastor and said, look who thinks he's a nobody. (laughs) You see, how, how do we compete at humility, meekness, and sacrificial love without hating our neighbor and becoming proud of our humility? How do you humble yourself with yourself? How do you strip yourself of pride and silence all of your vain boasting? I mean, if you, if you humble yourself with yourself, you become proud of your humility. And you turn yourself into a Monty Python sketch. Hey! Is there another way down? Is there another path down to the river? Please, please help me. I've got to get... Oh, my foot. Oh, oh damn, damn, damn. I'm sorry. Oh, damn. I haven't blasted. I'm sorry. Shh! And you sh- me. Eighteen years of terrible silence, and you sh me! What? I've kept my mouth for eighteen years, not a single recognizable articulate sound has passed my lips. See, could you be quiet for another five minutes? Oh, it doesn't matter now. I must enjoy myself. Time in the last eighteen years I wanted to shout and sing and scream my name out. Oh, I'm alive! I'm born Agila, I'm Bon Oh, I'm, 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 I'm alive, I'm alive, hello birds, hello trees, I'm alive <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that very well, but but I love that. This is what happens. That's the life of, the, of Brian, by the way. And, and, and Brian jumps into the hermit's hole and lands on the, on the hermit's foot. For 18 years, he's worked so hard at humility, and Brian totally offends his humility. And, and yet it's when the hermit fails at his humility that he begins to dance and sing, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. So what is humility? Isn't humility losing yourself. Didn't someone say, you must lose your life in order to to find it? Well, if I'm always ashamed of my life, always ashamed of myself, always criticizing myself, always punishing myself, you you see, I'm still stuck on myself. In fact, I'm stuck with myself, just naked and alone in in a hole in the ground, And, and that's not heaven. That's hell. So whether I'm impressed with myself, oh, I'm just really something, or whether I'm ashamed with myself, I hate myself, I'm still stuck on myself. And that's not humility. And that's not a walk worthy of my calling. And what's my calling, Ephesians 1.11, to exist to the praise of God's glory in Christ Jesus my Lord. If, if I make myself worthy, you see I don't exist to the praise of His glory. I exist to the praise of my glory. And how could anyone even begin to think that they could make themselves worthy of God's glory? I mean, really, isn't that a burden just infinitely greater than any one of us could ever even begin to bear? It's actually sheer insanity. And not only that, according to Scripture, it's the very essence of sin. It's believing that you are God and you make yourself in God's image, which means you make yourself nothing but insane, dead and deluded and stuck in a dark, dreary, dry hole in the ground. And yet, Paul still writes this, I beseech you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. In other words, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, entirely aware, that you can't make yourself worthy. Now do it. Walk responsibly, entirely aware that you are not responsible. Now do it. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, realizing that you are entirely not worthy. Now do it. How do we do that? How do we do that? How do we walk in a worthy manner? You can't humble yourself with yourself. You can't make yourself meek by asserting yourself. You can't lose your life by trying to lose it. It's like trying to forget something. You ever done that? God, I, I really got to think about forgetting that thing that I, that I don't want to think about. i am thinking about it? How do you do that? How do you purposefully forget something? Well, I'd like you to tell you two stories that that have helped me think about this. The first happened one cold winter night when I was in junior high. It was a night that uh, our church family group had all come over to my house. My father was a pastor. Most of the people in our group were the church leaders, but that group also contained my four best buddies, or three best buddies. Uh, Bob and Tudor and Matt and Matt's little brother Greg and on this particular night before dinner was served after dark we decided that we would go down we junior high boys always seeking to prove our manliness we decided that we would go down to the railroad tracks behind my house along Santa Fe Boulevard where one of us had the bright idea hey let's throw snowballs at cars and then I remember Matt, who was always particularly interested in proving his bravado, said, hey, I'm putting rocks in my snowballs. And then I remember this new catalog screeching to a halt along the side of Santa Fe Boulevard. And at that point, we hightailed it back to the house where we uh, sat at the dinner table eating spaghetti with the rest of the kids. I remember I was already totally, totally racked with guilt when the doorbell rang. My mom went to the door, opened the door, and there were these police officers there, uh, two of them, maybe three, um, but they had riot gear on. At least that's the way I remembered it. I mean, probably just had their, their helmets. And they, they walked into the kitchen. Well, no, first they, they explained to my parents. They said, um, uh, someone's been throwing snowballs at cars. And I remember my parents standing at the door and said, oh, well, it certainly wouldn't be our boys. But the officers said, well, we'd like to talk to them. So they, they came into the kitchen, and they, they stood there in, in the kitchen, and they explained that... Uh, This man had a brand new Cadillac with a a phone in the Cadillac, which is incredibly unusual back in 1972 or whatever that was, and uh, that the windshield was broken. And then he said, were you boys throwing snowballs at cars? And all of my friends said, no, sir. I, I was silent. And then he, he said, Well, that's interesting because uh, we found a bunch of tracks leading uh, in the fresh snow from this spot along the railroad tracks back up to, to this. Uh, front door. And my friend, Tudor, he said, oh, well, officer, you see, uh, we just went down there to watch the trains go by. Now, it's a freezing cold winter night, and the trains go by like once every three hours, okay? So it wasn't working all that well. So the officer, he says, well, okay, um, we're going to go out there, and we're going to check the tracks once again, follow them back, and if they come to this house, we're going to have to book you boys and take you into the station. Unless, of course, you confess right now. Everybody was in the room watching us. My little sister's eyes were just big as saucers, my two little sisters. My parents were there, the church was there, and in front of all those people, and in front of my friends, I, I just cracked. I said, we did it, we did it, we did it, we did it! And the officers took a report. They told us that we would have to pay for the windshield. They laughed, and then I remember everybody gathered in our living room, held hands, and prayed for us sinners. (laughs) And my dad prayed. And now, I got to tell you, it was probably a pretty good prayer. It was probably a pretty good prayer, but all I heard was this, you're not worthy. You are walking in a manner that is not worthy of your calling. I worked and I worked and and I remember I I paid for the windshield and and I still didn't feel worthy. Because the issue wasn't the windshield, the issue was myself. I was utterly ashamed of myself. And I could not forget me. And that's my point. I remember lying on my bed, in my bedroom, just trying so hard to forget it. I mean, talking to Peter, just stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Just forget it, forget it, forget it. And the harder I tried to forget, the more I remembered me. Everywhere I looked, mom, dad, sisters, everywhere I looked, I I remembered me. It was just this incredible burden I walked around with, me. Ever tried to forget yourself at a party? You know, you go to a party and you're starting to feel insecure and you're like, just don't think about yourself. Don't worry, just enjoy yourself. And, And the harder you try to forget yourself, the more you remember yourself. That's why people drink at parties. They're trying to crawl out of that lonely hole in the ground that is themselves. They're trying to forget themselves so they can dance. Well, the harder I tried to forget, the more I remembered me buried in shame. Second story happened May 28th, 1983. It was a day I I really did try to remember several things, but almost everything I tried to remember I forgot. Once again, I was surrounded by church people looking at me. And by the way, I wasn't drunk. Surrounded by church people looking at me. Uh, once again, my sister's eyes were big as saucers. Once again, my father led everyone in prayer, but then he made a proclamation. And now by the authority committed unto me by the church of Jesus Christ and by the state of Colorado, I pronounce that Peter and Susan are now husband and wife according to the law of the state and the ordinance of God. And Peter, you may now kiss your bride. And that day, I could not remember a thing, honestly. And I had tried. I I remember trying so hard to remember where I put the wedding license. And, and I remember trying so hard to keep track of the luggage at all times, the luggage for the honeymoon, because I was really excited about that. And I remember trying to keep track of where the car keys were at all times. Well, it turns out my groomsmen stole the car keys, got into lunch, got into the, got into the luggage, and taped our underwear all over the car and all sorts of other assorted of things they'd found somewhere. And uh, this is the funny thing, I remember not being embarrassed, not even ashamed. I had forgotten myself. I confessed myself and my shame for five years to this girl, and yet she still loved me. Ridiculous, naked me. And, and I mean, I, I really was a geek. I, I really was. And she, she loved me. It was like a miracle that she loved me. And, and that day, I was so overwhelmed with her, I forgot everything else. You see, if you want to forget something, you have to gaze upon something better than the thing you're trying to forget. If you want to humble yourself, you have to gaze on something better than yourself. If you want to lose your life, well, you have to lose it for something better than your life. If you want to humble yourself, you have to humble yourself in the sight of something better than yourself. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Well, anyway, on my wedding day, I forgot everything humbled myself, and danced like an idiot. Now listen closely. I forgot everything, danced like an idiot, and I walked in the manner worthy of a man who had just been called to the covenant of marriage. You know, every time you come to this table, you participate in a covenant. Every time you come to this table and participate in a covenant, someone makes a proclamation called the gospel, a proclamation that says, um, Jesus and his church, you are now husband and wife according to the ordinance of God. Isn't that amazing? Well, May 28, 1983, my father made a proclamation. I forgot everything, danced like an idiot, and dancing like an idiot, I became my wife's trophy. Did you know that you are Jesus' trophy? So when you come to church here and worship, it's not to earn a trophy, it's to become somebody else's trophy. I forgot myself and became my bride's trophy. Julian of Norwich said this, the greatest penance, the greatest humility, the greatest honor that we can give to our God is to live gladly because of the knowledge of his love. Can you imagine if on May 28, 1983, I spent the entire day walking around just moaning, Oh, I'm not worthy, honey. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Susan, I'm not I'm not worthy. I'm not I, I'm I'm but I'm trying. I'm trying to be you're so great, but I'm trying to be worthy of your love. I'm really really trying. It's hard, but I'm trying. I'm trying to be worthy of your love. Just thinking that I could make myself worthy of her love would make me entirely unworthy of her love. Her love alone made me worthy. So May 28th, 1983, I forgot myself, danced like an idiot, and walked in a manner worthy of my calling. You see, the worthy walk is a dance. And in order to truly dance, you have to forget yourself. And in order to forget yourself, you have to surrender to to something greater than yourself, something that's all around you and even within you. You have to forget yourself and surrender to the music. The rhythm, the logos, the meaning, the, the logic of the dance. Jesus is the logos, the logos of God. You have to forget yourself and surrender to the music. As long as you're thinking about yourself and the dance steps, well, you're really not dancing. You must lose yourself, surrender yourself. And, and, and yet a great dance is, is perfectly ordered. I mean, it's even like steps that have been prepared beforehand that you would walk in them perfectly ordered and yet absolutely free. And you know what's interesting? Proud people are usually pretty bad dancers. I mean, if you're really self-conscious, it's it's hard to dance. Uh, Proud people are usually bad dancers, but little children, gosh, they're good dancers. I mean, I was just amazed when my kids were little, before they kind of like really began to evaluate everything with their knowledge of good and evil, they just danced everywhere. They just, you couldn't stop them. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this, to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you wouldn't dance. See, when I'm stuck on me, me is such a tremendous burden. I can't dance Then Jesus says this in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'm heavy laden with me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, that's meek, and I am lowly in heart, that's humble, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's his yoke? Well, his yoke is this big wooden beam that we call a cross. Somehow, humility makes that yoke light. Somehow, humility makes all our burdens light. And that burden makes you humble and sets your feet to dancing. At the cross, we die to the self. You see, I am my own unbearable burden. At the cross, we die to ourself, and Jesus gives us his self. Jesus is entirely worthy. Well, anyway, like I I was saying a while ago, I was making this point, that you can't forget yourself with yourself. You can't humble yourself and love others, in other words, simply by trying. You can't walk in a manner worthy of your calling simply by trying to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In other words, you can't justify yourself with the law. The law can tell you when you're not dancing, but the law can't make you dance. And you can't make you dance with the law. In order to dance you, you have to hear the music and surrender to the music. And and you see that's what the therefore is therefore in Ephesians chapter four, verse one. It, Ephesians four through six contains a bunch of law. Do this, do that, this is how it should look, this is where you should step, this is how you should go. Ephesians one through three contains the music, the gospel of grace. Ephesians four through six describes our dance steps, dance steps, like a diagram. And you see, that's important. Why is that important? Well, it tells us when we're, we're not dancing, whether or not we're dancing. So along with Paul in Ephesians four, six, we'll ask this, these, these questions like, are you using your gifts? Are you speaking the truth? In love, are you confessing your sins one to another? Are you building up the body with what you do and what you say? Are you making the most of the time? Are you being faithful to your spouse? Are you being a good parent to your children? Are you being a good boss to your employees? Are you fighting the good fight against the principalities and powers of the world, rulers of this present darkness? Are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling? Are you dancing the dance steps But if all we do is study diagrams for dance steps, we still won't be dancing. Because the solution to a problem is not simply trying harder. The solution is to listen to the music, it's to listen to the voice of the one who is calling you, it's to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, it's to surrender yourself to the love of the bridegroom. You see, the purpose of the law is to reveal your need for the love of the bridegroom. Kind of uh, like the purpose of the gas gauge in your car is to reveal your need for gas. So when the gauge goes to empty, it doesn't do any good to like, bust the glass, take the needle, and just kind of bend it up to full. You have to stop. Surrender your empty tank and fill it up with fuel. And our fuel is body broken and bloodshed. It's the unstoppable love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our fuel is Jesus. So when you're trying to be good, which hopefully we all are trying in, in some way, that we want to be good, when you're trying to be good, you have to stop and gaze upon the one who is good. And Now, I don't know exactly how that looks for you because I think it's different for different people and God does it in different ways. I mean, maybe it's going for a walk in the woods and thinking about who Jesus is. Maybe it's reading the scripture together in a a group with other people. Maybe it's serving the poor and looking for Jesus in those people. But whatever it is, it's gazing upon Jesus and, and, and not yourself. Well, anyway, in Ephesians 4, 1, 2, and 3, Paul says, walk worthy. Then he describes walking worthy. Then in verse 4, he reiterates the first three chapters of Ephesians, the gospel. Now, Now listen closely. Walk worthy. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We've been talking about that hope for all fall. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all. And, and now, listen to these alls here. It's Father of all, who is over, who is God over. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. I mean, like a word that uh, builds and upholds all things, like the light that enlightens all men, like the music with which this entire creation was created, like music, but, but not all hear, not all dance, At least not yet. Some refuse to join the party. Some are captives of pride and shame, stuck in themselves. Some sit in holes in the ground in the depths of the earth. One God and Father of all, writes Paul, Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Literally, he led captivity captive. Remember how he's hostile to hostility and he's the death of death? He led captivity captive. It's my ego, you see, that holds me captive. It's my pride that holds me captive. It's my old self, my sin. He ascended on high, led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above above. All the heavens that he might fill all things. The very one, the same one that descended is the one that ascended and fills all things. So scholars argue incessantly about what exactly Paul meant when it says that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Number one, some argue that Paul is talking about his descent into hell, that dry, dark hole in the ground. Number two, some argue that it refers to his descent into human flesh, wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger, like we celebrated just a few weeks ago. Ago. Some say number three, they argue that it refers to his descent into us, to the power of his Holy Spirit into the church. And of course, it must refer to all three. For Paul writes that he did it to fill all things. It must describe all three. And all three is me. Uh, number one, I am my own prison. I am my own dark, dreary hole in the ground. Number two, I am the manger into which Christ is born. Number three, I am the body of Christ beginning to dance in this fallen world, beginning to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Therefore, therefore, you ought to come to worship each week. Stare at the bridegroom. Listen to the music of his love. And then let him, let him crawl into the dry, empty hole that is you, yourself. Let, let him be born in your manger. You know, I see him in a lot of places. I mean, like going for a walk in creation, uh, reading the Bible, and my group reading those things, serving the poor, all kinds of places. I mean, I see him in, in all kinds of places, but I think I see him in greatest glory when I see that it is the very same one who ascended above all the heavens that has descended into me, into my empty, sinful flesh, into my particular dry and dirty hole in the ground, into my sin, into my particular manger, into my particular manger, and then also sometimes into your particular manger. I mean, when someone confesses their sins and receives the grace of God, I don't know, I just see him in this amazing way and glory. In my manger, your manger. Since a week ago Tuesday was Christmas, I thought I'd end with the story of Roaring Camp, And, and I think this is what I'm trying to say was a novel written a while ago that I heard a preacher talk about, but Roaring Camp w- was supposedly the meanest, toughest mining town in all the West. I mean, it was just a terrible place, inhabited entirely by men and one woman that serviced them all. She died. She died giving birth to a child. Well, the men took the child, a baby girl, and they put her in a box with some old rags wrapped around her. But when they stood back and they looked at her wrapped in their old rags, they thought, well, this doesn't look right. Uh, so they sent one of the men eighty miles away, uh, and he—they he, all gave him some money, and they—and he bought a rosewood cradle, and he brought the rosewood cradle back to Roaring Camp, and they took the little girl wrapped in rags and put her in the rosewood cradle. Cradle, but, but the men—but when the men lo- looked at it, they thought, "Well, those rags don't look right." And so then they sent another man with, a, with another offering uh, off to Sacramento, 80 miles, 80 miles away, where he bought uh, the silk and lace blankets. And uh, he brought those back to Roaring Camp and they wrapped the baby in the silk and lace blankets and then they put her in the rosewood cradle and then someone noticed, man, these floors are really dirty. And so those angry old gnarly men got down on the floor and they began scrubbing the floor until the floor was clean. But of course, that only revealed the walls were dirty. The walls were dirty and there were no curtains on the windows. So so they cleaned all the windows. They put curtains up uh, uh, on top of the windows and things really started looking better. But of course, they had to give up their fighting because, well, the baby slept a lot and babies can't sleep through a brawl. And so the entire temperature of the town just started kind of, you know, going down. They used to take her out and set her, by the entrance of the mine in a rosewood cradle just so that they could see her when they came up out of the ground, just so they could gaze on her. And and then they realized, well, this doesn't look quite right. So someone planted some flowers near the entrance of, of the mine, and then they planted a garden. I mean, they cleaned the whole place up, and then they cleaned themselves up because, you know, those dirty hands just didn't look all that good next to that beautiful baby. And each one of those old guys just wanted to hold the baby. Just wanted to rock her, kind of dance around with her, sing to her. Well, the baby changed everything. The baby changed everything. And unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. You don't deserve that baby. But that baby makes you worthy. He's worthy. And on the night that he was betrayed, when we betrayed him, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat, and I want you to do this in remembrance of me. This is what I want you to do. I want you to get together and think about me. Remember me. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, uh, and having given thanks, he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Yet this is interesting. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He says, let each one of you examine yourselves. Test yourselves, kind of like we just did. Let each one examine yourselves so that none of you uh, take of the body and drink of the cup in an unworthy manner. What's an unworthy manner? Well, isn't it kind of becoming obvious? An unworthy manner is thinking that you could somehow make yourself worthy of this. You don't deserve the baby but the baby makes you worthy. You don't deserve the great bridegroom, but the great bridegroom makes you worthy. You don't deserve God, but God makes you worthy. So may you walk in a manner worthy of this. In other words, in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Tear off a piece of bread, dip it, in the cup, and then take the Logos, take the music, and chew on it. Ingest it. Be motivated by it. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Amen. And so, Lord God, we praise you for how great you are. Time is in your hand. All things were created through your word. And yet, Lord God, you have revealed the essence of your greatness in Jesus the Christ. And so, Lord, the very center of your greatness is that you are entirely humble. And you, Lord God, are entirely meek. And you, Lord God, are infinitely Patient. And you Lord God You're into bearing us In love Love bears all things That's what Paul wrote Love bears all things And you are so eager For unity That you would empty yourself The one who ascended Far above all things You would empty yourself And you would descend Into me Make your home in me. Make your home in us. Oh, Lord God, when I begin to see you there, then my heart does sing, how great is our God. Up until that point, I sing it because I'm scared or because someone's threatening me or something. But when I see that you have descended into my heart, oh, God, then I... I sing, how great is our God. Then my soul sings, how great is our God. And so, Lord God, we pray for your mercy, because even this is your grace, that we would see you in that place. And we thank you, Lord God, that in this world you are revealing that glory. And that at the end of the Bible, and the revelation, we find out that your bride has your glory. And yet earlier in the Bible, it says you share your glory with no one. That means you must be in your bride, in your temple, in your people, and then your people are home. So, Lord God, we thank you and praise you for how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, listen, if you'd still like uh, communion... We invite you to come up after the service in fact if you want to stay and sing a little bit that's fine or just pray uh, also if you want to stay I mean go go downstairs to fellowship okay because we're trying to work that and we're even getting new furniture in a little bit so it'll be real fellowshipy but if you want to keep <laughs> worshiping up here we invite you to do that and I invite you to come and take uh, communion I, I worry sometimes that people feel like oh, I'm not worthy for communion and they don't understand what that means when Paul says don't take it in an unworthy manner. It means aware of the fact that you need it, that you need God's grace and mercy and if you think you don't need God's grace and mercy, well yeah, then don't take it or maybe do take it. It's just that it will be judgment, okay? It will burn that crap out of you. Did you know that, did you know that Judas was sitting at the table when Jesus instituted the Last Supper? Peter was saying at the last table when Jesus instituted the Last Supper. I mean, you need the Last Supper, even if, it, even if it burns a bit. And also, I love it when people bring their kids to the table. This is a weird thing that happened in the history of the church, and then I'll shut up because I'm sorry to preach again. But, but in the history of the church, people started saying kids can't come to the table of the Lord until they understand uh, what it's all about. What a weird thing to say. Because remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He got angry at them. He said, You do not forbid the little children from coming, from coming to me. Because what is it that little kids know? Well, if they're they know that their daddy loves them and they're not worthy of his love. And yet they are worthy of his love because he loves them. When my kids were little, it was like, Well, of course you love me, I'm awesome. It was only when they got older and they began to judge themselves and measure themselves that that they didn't think that anymore. And Jesus says, you must become like little children. Your your Father in heaven, you see, he, he really loves you. And he wants you to know it. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.